want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. Ever since the first Sunday in January, we've been dealing with this question, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? The book of Judges is a book that describes God's people trying to do what is right in their own eyes, and more often than not, they fail, and we're about to see a story where they fail miserably. I, uh, I'm not a fan of book bands. I don't know how you feel about that. In fact, I cringe every time I hear about a group of people banding together for the sole purpose of having a book or a certain series of books banned from, say, a school library or a public library. It happens on occasion, and I'm not really in favor of that at all. Uh, Throughout our history in the United States, uh, especially even in the last century, we've seen groups come together trying to get books banned like uh, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye or John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men or The Grapes of Wrath or Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. We've even had groups come together to try to ban Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Most recently in the Atlanta area, there was a mother in Gwinnett County who who got up a a huge petition to have Harry Potter banned from the school library where her child went to school. Uh, I'm not in favor of book bans. And the reason is, see, I know, and you know this too, I know that in every public and school library, there are multiple copies of the Bible. And I also know from reading the Bible that if you ban some of those books I just mentioned and a few others, it's not a very long, slippery slope until you will find some folks who want to ban the Bible. You say, well, why would anybody want to ban the Bible? Well, here's why. Because the most graphic violence in any book in any library is found on the pages of the Bible. And I don't want the Bible banned. And so I know that if some other books are banned, it's not going to be long before somebody's going to come up and say, well, you know, if you think the violence in To Kill a Mockingbird was bad, you ought to read the Bible. And it wouldn't take much to get a group of people to try to ban the Bible. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm not a fan of book banning. Some of the most graphic sexuality is found in the Bible. Some of the most uh, graphic language is found in the Bible. And some of the most graphic violence is found in the Bible. In fact, in the last three chapters of the book of Judges comprise what I believe is the most graphically violent story in the Scripture. Now, some might say, well, the crucifixion would be more violent. And on a spiritual side, as far as an eternal side, that could be true. But, but just looking from a physical standpoint, the, la- the story that is found in the last three chapters of Judges is arguably the most violent story in the Scriptures. And most of the time, most Christians don't even know that it's there. Even people who have read through the Bible kind of skim over it. Or either if you ask them about it, well, I don't quite remember it, tell me again. 
I have to tell you, the first time I read through the Bible and I came to this story, I was shocked by what I read. I've never heard it taught in a Sunday school class. I don't remember it ever being preached in a sermon. Perhaps it has, and in my feeble mind, I've forgotten it. I know that I have never preached on it. And I think there is a good reason why we've never heard it or rarely heard it. It's a troubling, troubling story. It is located at the end of the book of Judges, but uh, chronologically it occurred early in the period of the Judges. We know that because at one point in this story, uh, Moses' brother, Aaron, his grandson, is named as the priest. Now the period of the Judges lasted somewhere around 350 years, somewhere around... uh, 350 to 400 years, and if Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, is the priest, then this story had to have occurred early on. But the writer of Judges places it last in the book, and for good reason. He's not interested in chronology, he's he's interested in theme. And his primary theme in this book is to show the wretchedness of our sin when we disregard doing what is right in the eyes of God. It is a tragic book. It's a dark book. I want to begin reading with Judges chapter 19, verse 1. I'm not going to read through the whole three chapters, although that is the whole story, but I want to read through the first few verses, and then I want to tell you the story. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. And so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. One of the most horrible stories I've ever read. It involves, uh, according to the scriptures here, a Levite and his concubine, a young girl who he had taken as a wife. Now, a Levite, you remember the the tribe of Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when the Israelites came into the promised land, God ordered them to to portion a portion out the land to 11 of the tribes. One tribe was not given a portion of land. Rather, they were to be priests unto God and they were designated to certain cities where they were to serve as mediators, priests between the people and God. And that tribe was the Levites. This man was a Levite from the Levite tribe. His calling by God was to be a priest to mediate between God and the people. The problem is, whereas he was designated to live in a certain city, this Levite wasn't doing that. 
The Bible says that he was living in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which means this man, this Levite, was living outside of the will of God for his life already. The Bible also says that this Levite had gone to Bethlehem in Judah and he had met and taken for, him, for his wife a young girl who the Bible here describes as a concubine. A concubine, uh, for lack of a better definition, was a second-class wife. Throughout the Bible, when you see men who had multiple wives, for instance, let's take uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob had, he chose for himself two wives, Rachel and Leah in the book of Genesis, and then later he takes to himself two other women who were his servants, and he took them to be his concubines. Now, Rachel and Leah were not concubines. They were his first choice wives, but then he took the other two women as concubines or second class wives, and they were never treated with the importance to Jacob as especially Rachel and also Rachel and Leah. This Levite took to himself a concubine, a young girl, a concubine. Now the Bible says that while they were living in the remote area of the hill country of Ephraim, the New International Version says that she was unfaithful to him. Some other versions say she became angry with him. The actual Hebrew in the oldest manuscripts says that she became angry with him. And although it doesn't give the reason, the implication is that she was angry with him for good cause. And as we read the rest of the story, if, if the rest of the story is any indication of the type of husband he was, she had pretty good reason for leaving. The Bible says that she left him and she went home to her father, which evidently was a, a great distance away. And the Bible says that after she left, this Levite man, did he go immediately to her? No, he waited four months. And after she had, gone, had been gone four months, he decides to go off back to her father's home in Bethlehem and get her back and the Bible says he does that he takes with him a servant and he takes two donkeys and he makes the travel and he gets to her father's house and the Bible says that evidently she met this husband of hers this estranged husband at the door and took him into her house her father-in-law's her father's house and her, and this father of hers gladly received the Levite man which I think is a bit strange. Uh, you know, if you think that someone has mistreated your daughter, uh, you're probably going to uh, welcome them coolly, but this man welcomed him gladly, took him in, fed his animals, fed his servant, fed him, uh, and, and made sure that he had a place to sleep. And, and the man stayed there with his father-in-law and his estranged wife for three nights. On the fourth night, he got up and he said, it's time for us to go. I'm going to take your daughter and we're going back home. And the man said to his son-in-law, stay here another night. It's late in the afternoon. If you, if you travel now, you're going to be traveling in the dark. It's not safe. You need to just stay here. And so the man stayed there another night. On the fifth night in that afternoon, before the night came, the man got up. Well, it's time for us to go. 
I'm going to take your daughter and my servant and our donkeys. We're going to head back home. Thanks for all the hospitality. And the old man tried to get him to stay again. You wonder, now the scripture is silent here, but you have to wonder if the, the older man was concerned for his daughter's safety. Won't you stay? Don't you need to stay? No, no. Appreciate your hospitality. We stayed long enough. And out they went. It was late in the afternoon. Which, which was a terrible time to be leaving that area because by the time he would get back to the place where he lived, it would be way past dark. In fact, leaving at such a late time would require that he would have to stop off and stay the night in some uh, intervening town. So they traveled, and as it began to draw near nighttime, they traveled near the city of Jebus. You and I know that city better as Jerusalem, but at this time, which was early in the period of Israel's history, it wasn't Jerusalem, it was Jebus, and Jebus was still in the hands of the Canaanite people called the Jebusites. It was not an Israelite town yet. And so the servant said to the man, this Levite, he says, you know, Jebus is right up ahead, we need to stay here for the night. And the man said, we're not going to stay in Jebus. This is a strange city. We'll be safer if we keep on going and find uh, an Israelite town. And so he insisted on going on further, further, and they reached during the night the town Gibeah. And they looked for a place to stay, and initially no one would invite them in. And so the Levite decided that he and his concubine and his servant and their two donkeys would stay the night out in the open air of the town square. As they were preparing their campsite, an old man who happened to be also from the hill country of Ephraim and who also had just come from Bethlehem, Judah, which was, remember, the Levite's two places of origin he came by and he saw them and he said what are you doing and where are you going and the man told him where he'd been and about his journey and the man said look I have uh, uh, I have a place to stay here in Gibeah and you don't need to stay here in the plaza in the in the town square it was the first indication that Gibeah was not a safe place to put to be Come stay with me. And so the Levite and his concubine and his servant and his two donkeys, they went in to stay with this older man who had secured a house in Gibeah. They got in there and they started refreshing themselves with uh, food and with something to drink when they heard a commotion on the outside. There were some sinister men from the area of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is a city in the, within the, the territory of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. These were Gibeah, people of Gideah who were also Benjamites. The commotion was a bunch of renegade men, wicked men who had surrounded the house, and they began to beat on the door. They called the man's name, the older man. He said, he said we saw you... Bring in a man and we want you to send him out here that we may have sexual relations with him all night long.
the older man came to the door and he said, he said, men, he said, don't do this. This is not right. Please don't treat my guests this way. Now that was a great thing for him to do, but then he, he messed it all up with his next statement. He said, instead of this man, this Levite man, he said, let me make this deal with you. I have a young daughter who is a virgin, and he has a concubine. Let me send the two of them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to to them all night long, but please don't touch the man. It reminds us of a story in Genesis 19. In Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember that, you've read the Bible, about Lot. When, when the angels came to visit Lot and the people of Sodom thought that the angels were men and they came to the door saying, let us have those men that we may have relations with them all night long. You remember? This older man of Gibeah offered his daughter and the Levite's concubine. Well, at that point, the Levite grabbed his concubine and shoved her out the door and slammed the door and the Bible says that the men of Gibeah abused her all night long the Bible says that when it came near sunup After they had done this to this dear lady, all night long, they let her go and she crawled her way back to the house of the older man and she fell unconscious on the front door stoop. Now, where is the Levite? What is he doing while they're abusing his wife all night long? What's he doing? Well, the Bible says that... Early the next morning, he got up. He slept all night long. No sign of him worrying about his wife. No sign of him protecting his wife. No sign of him going out to stand up for his wife. No sign of him praying for his wife. No sign of him, no tears, no groaning, no commo He slept all night. Then he got up and he picked up his things to continue on his journey the rest of the way home. And he opened up the front door and he saw his wife Unconscious, unconscious and limp on the front doorstep. So what do you guess that he did? Would he kneel down and check her pulse? Would he try to give her CPR? Would he call for 911? Would he ask for bandages? What would he do? Get up! Let's go! That's what he did. And when she did not respond, now keep in mind, there's no indication here that she was dead. In fact, there is never any indication that she's dead. He picks her up and he lays her on one of the donkeys. Lays her across one of the donkeys, unconscious, and they make their way all the way back home to the hill country of Ephraim. And that's where it gets really bad as if it has not already been bad enough. He takes her body down and he gets a knife 
and he dismembers her. Twelve pieces. Cuts her into twelve pieces, and then he mails each piece, mails each piece to a different tribe of the tribe of Israel. His intention was to, to shock the rest of the tribes into outrage so that they would gather together to Gibeah and punish the men of Gibeah. And it worked. They all got up. They were so angry. They were outraged. Who could possibly do such a thing? And they gathered together at Mizpah, the city at Mizpah, which was near the area of, Gi of Gibeah, and they questioned the Levite man. What happened? And the Levite man gives a story. Here was his story. It's in verse 5 of chapter 20. It says, During the night the men of Gibeah came after me and they surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. If you listen to his story, it sounds like he was a helpless victim, but a caring husband. But he conveniently skipped over the part of how he's the one who pushed his little wife out the door to these men. He never told that story, and they never investigated it any further. They felt like they had all the evidence they needed. And so they looked back in the Word, probably to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 18, which say this, listen to this. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have known, then you must inquire, probe, investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and if it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. So their intention was to gather all the men of Gibeah and kill them all. So they went to the Benjamites. Now Gibeah, the people of Gibeah were Benjamites, but they weren't the only Benjamites. And so the Israelites gathered together about 400,000 of them, a huge force, complete with expert swordsmen, and they gather into uh, to uh, the area of Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, and they tell the Benjamites, turn over the men of Gibeah to us because they have done this detestable thing. And the men of Benjamin refused to do so. We will fight you before we turn them over to you. And so they gathered to themselves about 26, between 26 and 27,000 soldiers, the Benjamites did, and so they're going to fight with their just less than 27,000 soldiers against 400,000 of the Israelites. There were three battles. In the first battle, the Israelites call upon the Lord and they said, Lord, who shall go lead us first? And the Lord said, the tribe of Judah. And so Judah, the, the tribe of Judah stood up and led the Israelites against the Benjamites and they were soundly defeated by this motley crew of Benjamites. 
Israel lost 22,000 in that first battle. They came back weeping. Lord, what are we going to do? Go up against them. And so they go up against them again. But this time, again, they were defeated. And that, instead of losing 22,000, they lost 18,000 fighting men, the Israelites. What in the world? How can this small band of Benjaminites defeat such a, an overwhelming Israelite force? God, what's up? And this time God says, Go up against them, and this time I will give them into your hands. And the Israelites went against the Benjaminites, and they slaughtered them. They slaughtered all but 600 soldiers. Now, they had almost 27,000. The Israelites slaughtered all but 600 soldiers. And those 600 soldiers would have been slain, except they fled to the hill country. And when they did, the Israelite army went through all the towns of the Benjaminites... And they destroyed every town and they killed every person, woman, child, including the animals. Nothing was left that breathed in the tribe of Benjamin. Can I just stop here and ask how many wrong decisions have been made in this story already? When the Israelites finished their slaughter of the Benjaminites, they came back and they started feeling remorse for what they'd done. But before they started feeling remorse, they made two oaths. The first oath was this, not a single male in the rest of the tribes of Israel shall marry a Benjamite woman. Of course, there weren't any left. And not a one of our daughters shall marry a Benjaminite woman. Man, and there were 600 of those left, but they'd made an oath. None of our daughters should marry them. And then they said this. They said, and any, any town that did not send soldiers to help us wipe out Benjamin, any town, we will go and we will wipe them out. And so they took a census. What town didn't show up? And there was a town in the central portion of Israel called Jabesh Gilead, and nobody came to represent the Jabesh Gileadites. So the Israelite says, we're going to go up to Jabesh Gilead and we're going to wipe them out. However, however, we've got to do something about these 600 men of Benjamin. If we don't provide wives for them somehow, we can't do it because our, we promised our daughters we'll not marry them. But he said, we, they said, we've got to figure out some way for the tribe of Benjamin not to be extinguished. And so they went to Jabesh Gilead and they wiped out the city with the exception of 400 young girls who had never been with a man. And they brought those young girls, all 400, to be wives to 400 of the 600 Benjamites. Well, that left 200 Benjamites who still didn't have a wife. The Israelites said, How, what are we going to do here? Uh, we've already given the Jabesh Gileadite uh, virgin women to these 400 men. What are we going to do for the other 200 men? And they got to thinking, and they said, we know what we'll do. Over in Shiloh, there was a city called Shiloh, and every year, unmarried women would come, and they would have a parade, a dancing parade. They called it a prenuptials parade. And the Israelites said, now, we can't give any of our daughters to you, but what we recommend you do, you 200 men, is to go up to Shiloh and hide out. And when the parade comes by, 
kidnap the 200, 200 of the girls from Shiloh. And the Bible says in verse 23 of chapter 21, so that is exactly what the Benjaminites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. It's an unbelievable story. It is a story that illustrates how bad things had gotten in the world. It is, it is a story that tells us the wretchedness of our sin. It tells us the, the utter stupidity of human solutions without even consulting God. It, it, it tells us that there is the need for something outside of ourselves. It's a fitting conclusion to this book. For two reasons. Number one, although you and I hopefully will never plunge to the depths that we would commit some of the things that are described in, this, in these three chapters, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the real truth is that deep down in every human heart is the capacity for some really bad stuff. There is the capacity in the best of us to do some really bad things. And this story tells us that. But this story also leaves with that final verse. Remember that final verse in chapter 21? In those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This last verse and this last story cries out for a king, somebody who was bigger than life, someone who was outside of these people's lives, who could come in and change the way things are. I'll tell you that the human condition that we have even today still calls for the intervention of something bigger than we are. And it's altogether fitting that we read this story two weeks before Easter. Because on that final week, we saw that God truly had intervened in this world. Something bigger than life had come to rescue us. A king that, that Israel and all the world had long looked for, indeed, had come into the world. And his name was Jesus. And he died on a cross that we might have life. He died on a cross to rescue us from ourselves. And to rescue us from the evil that lurks deep within all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to hear this story. We have neglected it for far too long. When we read through the Bibles, we have jumped over those last three chapters way too many times. It's not an Olympic event reading the Bible. They're not chapters to jump over. They're chapters to push through. We need to hear this story because it is a mirror of what we have the capability of doing and being. And it points us to Jesus. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. 
The number one item on God's to-do list for you and me is that you and I have a relationship with Him. Without it, we're lost. Without it, we are so susceptible to an evil that is unimaginable. But God sent His Son Jesus to die, pay the penalty for our sins and our wickedness and our evil so that if we receive Him as our Savior, we can have eternal life. He can save us from ourselves. My question for folks in this building right now is do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ has there ever been a time in your life when you invited Christ into your life to be your Savior and Lord do you know that you know you have a relationship with him if you don't this invitation is your opportunity to come we have people who will pray with you and lead you and help you to know what to do in order to receive Christ they care for you and I urge you when the singing starts to move out from where you are don't worry about who's here and what they might think and what they might do or what time it is and, or, or, or how urgent the time. Come, come. Maybe there are people who are saved, but you need to make a decision to join this church. God wants you to be a part of a loving, God-worshipping, Jesus-believing church family. And I, I can... I can my family and I, we can come and we can, we can sit and worship with the church and we can sit in a Sunday school class with the church and we can do a lot of things with the church, but until we are officially joined to that church, it's really not the same. There is a barrier that holds us back from being really what we can be. Maybe you need to make a decision to join the church. Maybe there's a decision in your life right now. You've come in here and you're carrying a weight of some struggle that you're facing and you don't want to tell anybody, that's okay. All of us, I, I'm sure, have struggles like that. I do. There are struggles I can't talk with you about. But you can talk to the Lord about it. You don't have to tell me. This could be the day when you make the most life-changing decision of your entire life. It happened today. I hope you'll make it. Let's pray. Almighty God, I have to confess, Lord, that if I were writing your word, I don't know that I would have put that story in there. So it's a good thing that I wasn't doing the writing. Lord, your word is honest with us. It's honest in that it, it shows us the human condition. It shows us how wretched human beings can be when we just go about doing whatever we want to do, Lord. When, when, when we don't do what is right, life quickly gets out of hand, as it did in this story. So, Lord, you've shocked us in... in in reminding us of how deep is our sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to deal with our sin this morning. I pray for someone to come and receive you as their Savior. I pray, Lord, for people to come and join this church. I pray for people to feel free to come and fill this altar just to bring their concerns to you, Lord. Lord, let this be a time of life change pray in Jesus' name. Amen.